and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare Podcast, iBuzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts, and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz! Welcome to another episode of iBuzz. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Megan Ross, who is the director at Lincoln Park Zoo. She is a visionary institutional director and focused on all the strategic operational and programs initiatives at Lincoln Park Zoo. She's an expert in zoo and aquarium ethics, a published scientist, and a committed environmentalist. And also, Zoo Monitor was her brainchild. So I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast today. Welcome, Megan. Thanks, Sabrina. I'm thrilled to be here. Wonderful. So before we dive into all the amazing work that you have done, and of course, Lincoln Park is doing, can you do a short introduction to yourself and, you know, how did you come to the zoo community? Sure, uh, happy to. Um, so I'm Megan Ross. I am the zoo director here at Lincoln Park Zoo, which is in Chicago in the U.S. Um, we are a very medium-sized zoo, but we're kind of unique in that we are free to the public. So our tagline is for wildlife for all and it really encompasses everything that we do. So just a little bit about me and the institution. Um, how I got here was, I guess I feel like a little bit of an interesting story. I've been at the zoo for 20 years, but coming into the zoo world was not something that I anticipated doing. When I was um, an undergraduate, I did a lot of research with banding birds in the field. And also I worked in a psychology lab with um, small rodents, um, kind of looking at welfare and different things within the, the rodent lab. Um, and I never really foresaw my future as being working in zoos. And it wasn't until I fortuitously met Dr. Terry Maple, who used to be the director of Zoo Atlanta um, and I was introduced to him by a family friend and he was the one that really brought me into the zoo world. He was very much asking me what I wanted to do and I was talking about being interested in conservation and welfare and behavior and um, through that fortuitous meeting I um, applied to be one of his graduate students and I started a program that was a partnership in the 90s and in the 80s with Zoo Atlanta and Georgia Tech, which is a university in Atlanta. Um, and I started a PhD program there. So that kind of got me on the path into getting into the zoo world and led me here to Lincoln Park Zoo 20 years ago. Wonderful, what a journey. Can you talk a little bit more about what kind of studies uh, you have done, uh, what your PhD was about? 
Happy to. So um, in my PhD program, um, I studied lots of different species at Zoo Atlanta prior to coming to Lincoln Park Zoo. Um, my master's thesis was looking at Chilean flamingos and looking at some of our husbandry strategies and if we were possibly affecting herring behavior in a negative way or in a positive way based on some of our husbandry strategies we're using at Zoo Atlanta. And then um, while I was uh, all but dissertation for my PhD program, I did come to Lincoln Park and I did my dissertation research here at Lincoln Park Zoo. I was the bird curator at the time. Um, and Lincoln Park Zoo was really interested in having PhD curatorial staff. So the idea is that staff um, who were curators would be doing research um, and facilitating research and then also overseeing those animal areas. Um, and so I started to work on looking at the effects of ultraviolet light on bird behavior. So for those of you who are not that familiar with birds and their senses, um, humans have what we call trichromatic vision. So we th see three primary colors of light, but that is different for birds. Um, birds have something called tetrachromatic vision, which means they have four primary colors of light. And Lincoln Park Zoo is in Chicago, which is in the northern part of the US. And therefore, most of our birds are actually housed indoors. And so that means that those birds don't have access to UV light, or it didn't at that time. And so my study was really trying to understand what are the implications for how we're housing birds in these nor northern climate zoos where it's cold and they're housed inside and they don't have access to one of their primary colors of light. And what I found is that most of the birds in the study um, showed a preference. So I gave them options for half of the exhibit would have um, a UV light added to it and the other half would not and found that most of the birds preferred to go into the areas where there was supplemental UV light added into their habitat. And when they were there, they were a little bit more social with each other and spending time in closer proximity. There really wasn't any other behavioral effect. I was expecting to see many more behavioral effects, but that was my primary finding for my dissertation research that I did in the early 2000s. Excellent. You touch upon so many different topics that all have you know, to do with, of course, you know, the animal care and welfare work, but also implications for conservation programs, breeding, and also you highlight the importance of really, you know, looking at all kinds of different fields, the animal welfare sciences, if you like, uh, and your whole background also including rodents and now working on birds. And it's so interesting also to hear that Lincoln Park Zoo is really focusing also on having curators, you know, having a PhD in a certain topic and really, you know, taking that research forward in their departments. And, and is that something that uh, in all departments is the case? So from, you know, birds to mammals to invertebrates and reptiles? So we, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, uh, Lincoln Park Zoo was very focused on having PhD curatorial curatorial staff. And at that time, our conservation science department was only about four people. Um, and then we did a fundamental shift about 2003. So I started in January 2000. And about 2003, we decided to change the way that we were doing our science here at the zoo. 
And what we were doing is that our science area was really focused primarily on doing population biology work and then also funding research projects and researchers around the globe to do different research projects. But we changed to, instead of being a funding agency, we wanted to have field sites that we would fully fund and they would become Lincoln Park Zoo staff. So we shifted that in the early 2000s to go from having a very small conservation science department to now having a conservation science department that has a little bit more than 40 people in it. We have over 40 scientists working here on staff and we have, I believe the number is somewhere around 16 or 17 PhDs on staff. So not all, none of the curators currently have PhDs, um, but they work hand in hand with PhDs that we have on staff that are in the animal care department. Those are primarily in the welfare science area, as well as our conservation science staff. So we've worked over the last decade at really breaking down our silos. So when we talk about things that are happening in animal care, we're also often talking about things that are happening in our science programs and our learning programs. So those programs really work as a one cohesive unit at this point. So we don't have the PhD curators, but we do have enough PhDs that PhDs are kind of infused into almost everything we do from audience research to learning outcomes research in our learning department to animal welfare science to advocacy work that we're doing to welfare work um, across the U.S. Um, on uh, chimpanzees um, and partnerships that we have with sanctuaries to urban wildlife and understanding how urban animals interact with humans and how we can create better cities of the future to population biologists that are really doing modeling to figure out how all this works together. Wonderful. Th th those are so many topics. Uh, it's a very windy, cold day here in Spain, and uh, we might have to uh, extend this podcast into several hours. No, just kidding. But these sounds absolutely <laughs> wonderful uh, to hear, you know, so much and how it all ties together. I'm really glad to hear that, you know, breaking down the silos is so important when it comes to working for animals, with animals, and also whether it's research, conservation, welfare, all this education programs in an executive work. That is just wonderful to hear how it, Lincoln Park is doing that. And can you talk a little bit, because of course, a lot of people listening to the podcast, some of them might be students, some might be um, animal you know, care staff, others might be aspiring researchers, and you have really gone through, you know, so many different ranks, and now you're a zoo director. What are some of your nuggets of advice for students or others that are interested in a zoo career or potential academic career or a management uh, career? Yeah, I, you know, I would say that typically my answer to this question when I'm asked it is that one of the strategies that I've had in my life is sometimes things feel like they're very uncomfortable or I'm not sure that is for me or, you know, those are the types of initial responses I have in my head when I think of opportunities that might be available to me. But I made a commitment with myself long ago that I would say yes to all of those things. Not all of them, but the things that I thought might have something that would excite me or challenge me or give me exposure to something that I've never had exposure to before. And so I guess I have this internal commitment to myself because I know that I, I'm a, I can occasionally kind of 
go into my shell and be a little bit quiet. Um, but I decided long ago that that wasn't going to work if I wanted to really get to where I wanted to go. And so it's, I would say my biggest thing that has been helpful for me is just saying, yeah, I'm going to try that and I'm going to give it a go. And if I don't like it, then I know that's not for me later. And if I do like it, then that's great. And when opportunities comes up, like my friend knowing Terry Maple and he said, um, and she said, you should meet Terry Maple. I think he might be someone that could offer you some advice. And instead of saying, oh, okay, and then not doing anything, really following up on those things. Because you never know what conversation, what opportunity, what passing phrase that someone says that is actually could just change your life and could get you on a trajectory that's going to land you where you really want to be. And I feel very lucky that I have said yes to all of those things, even though maybe sometimes I think, ooh, that sounds hard. <laughs> so I guess that would be my biggest advice. Yes, that's absolutely wonderful advice, especially also, like you say, you know, being open to all kinds of opportunities and really, you know, getting out of your comfort zone, as we often say, when you have to maybe learn something new or try something new and really this, you know, saying yes to things, even if you don't necessarily yet know, like you say, you can try it and then see, does it work for me? Or maybe by trying, you actually find out, you know, what you're really good at or you meet somebody else again, because as you say, one person, you know, can change the course of your life. So that's wonderful uh, advice. And that has actually, you know, all these steps that you've taken through your academic career to practical working uh, with animals and people and teams have you now in the position as a zoo director. And, and can you talk a little bit more to how you became the zoo director, the first um, woman, the first female zoo director, correct? That's right, and the only the eighth zoo director at Lincoln Park Zoo, even though we're 152 years old. So um, I feel very fortunate, and I'm in a very small group of people who have been a director here at Lincoln Park Zoo. Um, yeah, so what we just talked about with the idea of saying yes to new opportunities, this is one of the things that resulted in that. I had, um, there was an executive leadership program with the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And it was starting up, it was the inaugural class that they were putting together. And it was for people who thought they wanted to become a zoo director in the next five years. And people within AZA saw leadership potential in them. And I didn't even know about the program, but I had been nominated for it. And I thought, when I heard that I was nominated for it, I thought, oh, zoo director. I don't know, I really love what I'm doing right now. I don't know. And then I reminded myself of my internal commitment to say yes and try new things. And that year, I had to stretch myself in ways that I wasn't prepared for. I will say that that executive leadership program was, um, it really changed my perception of being a zoo director and it also showcase to me that there were lots of elements of being a zoo director that I didn't really understand. So um, that whole year I said yes to all the things that sounded um, very strange and new to me as being a research scientist and an animal manager was very comfortable in that world but going out and doing fundraising was something that was new and different and strange and going to um, Washington DC and doing lobbying 
Um, so talking to representatives uh, in the government about how they could help support the zoo or how they could help support wildlife and um, trying to facilitate bills getting put into place that would further protect wildlife. Um, that was very different and new. And so it was a lot of me getting very much out of my comfort zone. And I will say that that is the year that really the whole commitment to saying yes to things that were very uncomfortable was probably the most important to me. Because at the beginning of the year, when I heard that I had been nominated and I said yes, I thought this is a year that will allow me to figure out if being a zoo director is something that I want or if being a zoo director is something that is not for me. And I took that very seriously and um, I came out of the year feeling like this might be for me, but it was only as a result of me really stretching myself. And I will say probably three quarters of the year, I considered myself to be very uncomfortable <laughs> in the different things that I was doing. But as I got through the year, I started to get more comfortable in those different spaces. So I, that's why I think this whole trying new things um, and then being honest with yourself, like, is this for me or do I really not like this? I think that's also really important because sometimes there are things that you learn when you try something and you say, wow, I really don't like that. And that is probably more important than the things that you do like, because knowing what you don't like will help you say no to the things that are wrong for you in the future and yes to the things that are right for you, but maybe are stretching you, so. Absolutely, that's just wonderful to hear that because often, you know, it's not necessarily clear also, especially if you are maybe at the beginning of your career, but also like you say, you know, you're comfortable or you really like a certain career path that you're in or position that you're in. And as you said, you know, there was this, this um, preparation, but I didn't really know whether I would like it or not. And then, you know, committing to it and, and being honest and, and really seeing whether you would like it or not. Uh, you know, might I want to become that and then finding out if you if you truly want that. So th that is so important. And it really doesn't matter whether you're going to be a zoo director later or, you know, working as a scientist in wildlife conservation. But it's so important to really find out what is it that makes my heart sing? Also, what am I good at? You know, in what ways do I uh, like contributing? So these are just wonderful nuggets. And it reminds me of this book that I once read, A Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes, uh, where she, you know, also talks about, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful book where she also, you know, um, like you said, you know, sometimes she may be a little bit quiet or not sure. And, uh, and she also committed to that, you know, I'm going to just say yes to everything or almost everything. Um, and um, yeah, and, and also, as you say, like, how do you find your way, right? Sometimes people say, well, you know, you just have to act like you belong or you just have to fake it until you make it. But I really like how you put, you know, this, this context and also the, the detail of the honesty uh, with yourself because all those things don't really work if, you know, that position or that route isn't for you. So I think the honesty with yourself uh, is so key. So thank you so much for sharing all these nuggets with us. And you know, you already yeah, said- Yeah, I would add a couple of things here. If, yes, please. If you don't mind, I would add a couple of things that I just thought of is, you know, my husband also is a researcher. And so, you know, that whole year of being in that executive leadership program was me having to come to terms because when you're the zoo director, 
you have to really embrace other people's opportunities, right? So other people are doing research and you have to be just as excited about their doing research. If you want to be doing research, you're probably not gonna be as successful as a zoo director because you're torn between two worlds. And so that was really a lot of what I had to come to terms with as being a researcher and being someone who was, you know, a little bit more hands-on with animal management, was I gonna be okay being further away from it and kind of living vicariously through other staff members talking about their successes. And um, I think that was something that I took to heart a lot. And I know that my husband, who is also a researcher, for him, he would never want to be fully away from and in the more administrative world. Like he's as far away from um, animals as he wants to be. And he is still doing actively research and and watching animals and studying them and writing papers. And for him, I know when we had that year, we had a lot of conversations about like, what feeds my soul, what feeds his soul. And so that it was nice to have somebody to reflect with. So that's another thing that I hadn't thought of, of how important it was until you just were talking back with me. But that kind of having that conversation, especially having someone who's approaching things from a different perspective to talk through what they're seeing and feeling and what you're seeing and feeling also that was really helpful. Yes, absolutely. And sometimes also you don't know, right? That's why when you talked about some of the advice and the wisdom nuggets over about your career, sometimes you also don't know if you're going to like it, not like it, if you're going to be okay with it, or if you're really going to miss, you know, working directly with the animals or doing the research yourself. And so, yeah, so it's so great to be able to talk about that and really reflect on it so that you can make, again, back to your uh, other wisdom nuggets on honesty with yourself. Really, you know, am I going to be okay? Is this really where I want to go? And being able to talk to somebody uh, about that or other people that, you know, may have made certain career choices is so valuable. So maybe can you talk a little bit about who your husband is and what amazing things he is doing? Because I know some of them and you have, uh, you know, already pointed a little bit to them with regards to sanctuaries and chimps and probably lots of other things that he does that I don't know of, but who is your husband? Uh, sure. Um, well, I feel like he would be better at phrasing himself, but I will, uh, I will give an introduction to who he is. He uh, is a chimpanzee researcher and he is the head of the Lester E. Fisher for the study and conservation of apes here at Lincoln Park Zoo. And that center does a lot of different types of research. So within that center that he's the director of, they do work here doing behavioral monitoring of the chimps, the gorillas, and our Japanese macaques. So that's here at the zoo. We also have a cognitive program where we are really trying to understand the minds of chimps and gorillas and um, our Japanese macaques and asking questions of them using touchscreen technology. I think Lydia Hopper, who was on a previous podcast, might have talked a little bit about some of that research that we're doing here. Um, and then we have uh, an, an advocacy uh, section of the Fisher Center that is really focused on chimpanzees. Um, we have a project called Project Chimp Care, and that has been um, a welfare group, uh, a welfare effort that has really been 
looking at people's perceptions of chimpanzees and doing a lot of advocacy to help them here in the United States. So you may or may not be aware, but chimpanzees until recently were able to be maintained um, as pets in people's homes in the United States. And also they were used in entertainment here in the US. And so we started this project Chimp Care, uh, I think it was about 15 years ago, maybe a little bit less than that, um, where we were trying to assess what are people's perceptions of chimpanzees? So we found out that if people are in the same space as a chimpanzee in a visual, that people's perception of chimpanzees is that they are less endangered than other species where they do not see humans in that same image. So that was one um, of our big results. We also had a non-judgmental project where we went to different places around the US and we're assessing where are chimpanzees, how many chimpanzees are here in the United States, um, and asking what people's long-term plans were for those chimpanzees. And that project has facilitated rehoming of chimpanzees to accredited zoos or accredited sanctuaries here in the US. And I believe we've rehomed approximately 60 chimpanzees. It also rehomed the last of the entertainment chimpanzees. So those have our chimpanzees are no longer in entertainment. And then uh, we've been doing advocacy work, which resulted in the end, um, with, which resulted in the chimpanzees being protected by the Endangered Species Act here in the US. Um, and that was in part of us working across the aisle, I, I think you would say, with other groups that maybe zoos don't traditionally partner with, um, but working with many different types of advocacy works for the betterment of chimpanzees. And it did result in chimpanzees becoming protected by the Endangered Species Act, which they previously had not been, which really eliminated pet trade and entertainment for chimpanzees here in the US. And then lastly, we have a partnership um, with Chimpaven, which is an accredited sanctuary here in the US where all of the retired chimpanzees owned by the US government that were in biomedical research, they go there to retire. Um, and we have a full partnership there where we have Lincoln Park Zoo staff that go and do behavioral monitoring of those chimpanzees. So that's kind of our chimpanzee arm, and that's a lot of the work that he does. And then finally, in the Fisher Center, we also have a field site in the Republic of Congo that is a part of the Fisher Center's work where we have um, full-time staff members who are looking to protect chimpanzees and gorillas that live in kind of one of the last touched places on Earth, um, they're called the Gulogo Triangle, and they are studying chimpanzees and gorillas and working with loggers to see how we can mitigate the effects of logging on uh, great apes in that area. And um, Dr. David Morgan, who um, is a Lincoln Park Zoo staff member, uh, really runs that field site, and uh, he has been incredibly successful in working collaboratively with the logging industry and realizing that chimpanzees are much more disturbed by logging practices than gorillas are, and really helping to kind of work collaboratively with the loggers to figure out how to harvest in a way that will be the least impactful for chimps in the Gulogo Triangle. And I think recently wrote the IUCN guidelines for harvesting wood near great apes. Um, so that is something that we're very proud of, that field site. So a lot, a lot, big mouthful of what happens in the, the Fisher Center, but that's the area of the zoo that um, 
my husband, Steve Ross, overseas. Wonderful. It, amazing. Thank you so much for this, you know, background also. And also really showing working together with so many different, you know, organizations and people. And we'll certainly, you know, I'll certainly hope that Steve um, will come onto a podcast and talk a lot more also about his work uh, that he's doing. So, you know, you talked about all these various aspects, also what, you know, you went through when you were in the executive leadership program and learning about, you know, funding and protection of animals and, uh, and really supporting wildlife. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the aspects that Lincoln Park Zoo is doing in this domain, perhaps something about urban wildlife or perhaps something about, you know, some of the, the protection of animals that, that you have been able to, you know, complete or put forward in the time that you've been there. Yeah, so um, we really have what we call kind of centers of excellence is what I would say. And so the Urban Wildlife Institute is one of our centers of excellence in our conservation science area. And um, that's an area where we are really working to better understand how wildlife have been navigating urban landscapes, just to make it very easy. So as human populations expand, wildlife are pushed out, and then wildlife move back into those urban landscapes. And it started in the um, early 2000s, the Urban Wildlife Institute, and what we were doing is really putting up camera traps and bat monitors and other things around the city of Chicago to understand how urban wildlife are using the landscape here in Chicago. And over the years, we realized that other cities could benefit from the same program. So we created Urban Wildlife Information Network. And now we have 30 cities that are partnered with us and they're collecting data and it ranges from university partnerships to zoo partnerships. We have lots of different types of agencies that we are working with in each city um, where they are collecting the same urban wildlife data in the same way that we are. And then we can make um, discussions and decisions and understand across city landscapes what is important, what's important for your top predators, what's important for um, you know, lower prey species, uh, how can we create corridors that are going to be helpful for wildlife, um, all of those types of things. So last year we had um, an Urban Wildlife Information Network Summit where the cities that partner with us all came together. So it was the city's researchers with city planners and architects, and they all looked at the data and how the data could be used to inform city planning. And um, it was a very successful conference and it's been really exciting to see the momentum and enthusiasm of the different partner cities. And we are currently um, working with the city of Chicago right now to write some guidelines on how we can create better spaces for wildlife and humans to coexist. Again, since Lincoln Park Zoo's Tagline is really for wildlife for all. We really try to have that encompass everything that we do here at the zoo. And so this is a good example of that. At the same time, our Urban Wildlife Institute has continued to be doing work here in the city. We have the Davie Center for Epidemiology and they are looking at disease risk. So where are rats in the city? Where are these pest species that can be harbors of disease and have a lot of conflict with conflict with people. And we're kind of layering that into this whole information network. And so 
Again, if anybody knows people who want to become members of the Urban Wildlife Information Network, we are looking for new partner cities and new partner researchers. So I will put a little plug in for that. But that really highlights um, some of the ways that we are trying to affect wildlife in unusual landscapes in a positive way so that we can really mitigate that whole human wildlife conflict, which we know can be such a problem around the globe. Yes, and we'll definitely make also all those links available with the description of the podcast. So when people want to, you know, learn more or reach out to connect and become part of this or any of the other programs uh, that, that has these possibilities, then they can do so. So we'll definitely make those available with the podcast. And I think it's so interesting also and important, you know, you're, you talked about changing, uh, of course, landscapes or, you know, are human species and and human animals if you like living with all other animals in this world right and how do we how can we do that so that others can also you know live in spaces and what are these shared spaces and also how do we then you know also consider the animals that you know we might not actually want near us for various reasons that are undesired but still do so in a way, you know, that uh, that we also consider their welfare and all those aspects. So it's really interesting and important to talk about all these details. And I think, you know, you've talked already quite a bit about, you know, having a foot in science and in the practical care uh, of animals. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, your views on animal welfare and specifically to the Lincoln Park um, Zoo Welfare Program, which is, uh, quite a, a dynamic program. It is quite a dynamic program. Uh, I'm so proud of our Lincoln Park Zoo Animal Welfare Science Program. Uh, as we've talked already a lot about in this podcast, we really embrace the idea of using science in everything that we do. And I really have been so impressed and so pleased to see science being infused. And I don't mean science in like the generic term way. I mean science, like the scientific process, creating a hypothesis, testing it, collecting systematic data, and then looking for the results and really trying to understand the impact that we have when we make changes for animals. And that is so important when you're thinking about welfare because you know care is what we can provide to the animals and welfare is what is happening inside that animal and how it perceives its world and how it is um, navigating its life and kind of all those perceptions that go with it from good to poor um, in a continuum. But we, we have really taken a very holistic approach on how we work together to better affect welfare here at the zoo. So we have Zoo Monitor, which we developed um, and have been using for many years. It was originally developed for us as a tool because we wanted to create a way for us to collect behavioral data so we knew how the animals were spending their time. We use that already to inform how we do design for new habitats. So we figure out what animals prefer in their habitat and give them more of that in their um, new habitats when we're doing construction. And then where are they avoiding and giving them less of that. But we decided when we um, started to put together Zoo Monitor, what if we just did this on a day-to-day -day basis? And we collected data every day and we could understand when we make management decisions, how is it affecting that animal? How are they spending their time in their habitat? Uh, if we put in this new enrichment item, is it really changing 
I know they interact with it, but is it changing their overall behavior? Is it changing how they spend their time in their habitat? Is it changing the way that they spend their 24 hour period in the spaces that they live here at the zoo? And then we layer into that, of course, health, and we have our cognitive program where we're asking questions like, what is your preferred food item? Do you like this more than that? How much more do you like this than that? And really try to understand how animals are perceiving their world and putting all of those things together and being intentional in our conversations. So every animal here at the zoo, we talk about every single animal or species here at the zoo every year. We sit down and have a formal meeting and it involves animal welfare science team or research team, as well as animal management and frontline keeper staff. We sit down and we have a conversation and it's hard because we have what 230 species here. So that means every day we have to essentially have a meetings on the books where we just sit down and talk about those animals, but we sit down and talk about them um, from lots of different angles. So what are the veterinarians seeing? What are the animal managers seeing? What are the keepers seeing? And what are scientists seeing? And then we usually have someone who's outside of that groups, um, who's not working with those animals regularly. So they can say from, a, from an outsider's perspective what they're seeing as well. And I think that from all of these things coming together with animal welfare science, being using the scientific method to really answer and ask some of those questions, we've created a very comprehensive way to better understand what's going on with our animals and how they are navigating their world. And I just, I really enjoy it because I feel like having those conversations are hard. Having those conversations and bringing all those different groups together are hard. But at the end of the day, the product that we get, we're so much richer. We understand so much more. We are better stewards of those individual animals that call Lincoln Park Zoo home. And um, I just am really proud of the team because this has been a, a tremendous team effort that they've been evolving over the last several years. Yes, it's absolutely at zoo conferences, welfare conferences, but also, of course, in academic papers and in so many more ways. And the Zoo Monitor website, there's so many, you know, communications of all kinds from the welfare team, but also the care staff. It's, it's really wonderful to see how a zoo really has this, you know, like you say, this holistic approach and your animals first approach for many of your programs. Or, or if all programs, perhaps maybe you can talk a little bit more uh, to that. Uh, and we have had, you know, Dr. Katie Cronin share some of her research in a webinar on the Practical Animal Welfare Science Platform and Dr. Lydia Hopper. And just a few days ago, I was talking to Dr. Jason Wark about, you know, of course, the Zoom Monitor. Uh, so it's really exciting to hear all the various stories and details from, you know, the staff working and uh, and all these connections. You know, like you say, it's not necessarily easy, but it's so much more rich and uh, and accurate also when we do work like that. And also having that outsider perspective. And as you say, you know, making sure that we are doing the best for animals um, possible. So. Can you talk a little bit about the animals uh, first approach uh, that you have at the zoo for all kinds of programs? Um, yeah, I think we, we, when we have a new program or when we're thinking about pro existing programs and evaluating them, again, because we're so um, science heavy, we do take a very 
systematic approach to looking at all of our programs and evaluating them and looking at outcomes and impact and are we doing the best that we can and how can we do better? I, I do think that one of the things that we uh, do well and um, it makes it a challenge is that we're never content with where we are. So we kind of push ourselves to move forward. And I, I just wanna say that I think sometimes I'm talking about the scientific team a lot, but this is also the animal care team and all of the teams here at the zoo. Like this is a, is a culture that we have created where it's, we're never content. How can we do better? We can always do something better. And um, I think that that we can always do something better and taking it from the, how can we do something better for every individual animal best life, I think is something that the whole zoo has really embraced. And, and I think it, it, it's the result of explicitly calling out that that is one of the things that we value as an organization. So when we talk about for wildlife for all, we're talking about wildlife in the wild. We're also talking about every individual animal that we house here. And we definitely take the um, position of being uh, caretakers for those animals and how can we be the best caretakers for those individual animals and so as we approach things like when you're going in to um, see our goats what is that experience and what is the impact that it's having and what are the perceptions that might be happening in that habitat I don't know if Dr. Katie Cronin talked about it but we used to have an area where you could go in and you would get to pet the goats and it was a petting area. So you would go in, you would meet at the farm in the zoo, you would meet a goat, you would get to pet it, and then you would leave. And the conversations often were like, ooh, I touched it, or ah, I touched it, or a lot of those types of responses from kids that would go into that area. And when we looked at it and we thought about what the perception was that people were getting after they had that experience, the perception that they often had was, this is cool, I like goats, goats feel weird, uh, I got to touch a goat, but nothing about like caring about goats. And we said, you know, what we do here is we care for animals and we should be fostering that same empathy and care philosophy to our guests who come to the zoo. And so we said, we need to do this better, different, so that we can really have the impact we wanna have on individuals that are coming to, into this space. And so all we did was we changed what your experience was by handing you a brush. And so our conversations now, when people come to the goat yard, they still come to the goat yard, um, and the goats can be in the yard where the people are or they can choose to go away. The goats have their own choices that they can make, which we also felt was important for the goats. But we hand everyone who comes in a brush and we say, we care for these animals and we would like you to help us care for them. And the goats really like to be brushed. So could you help us care for our goats by brushing them? And it was, it sounds pretty small. It sounds like a small change, right? Petting versus brushing. But just the way we framed before they went into the yard really had an impact and the conversations that resulted were even better than we were anticipating. The conversations became things like seven-year-olds saying things like, how do they like to be brushed? I like my hair to be brushed like this. 
Do they like to have their hair brushed like this? And the goats, I have to say, have never looked glossier. <laughs> we're not able to do it right now with COVID, but when we were able to have that program where we were able to have people have contact with our goats, our goats would come over and kind of lean in and enjoyed being brushed. Whereas when they were being touched, sometimes people would poke them or you know not touch them in the way that they wanted. And then they would just walk away from the area. And bringing in that one small element and talking about that this is about care fundamentally changed the whole experience for both the goats and our visitors and the impact that was having on our visitors on their perception of what we do and how we should be caretakers of animals. That is just so wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all these really, you know, beautiful nuggets. And as you also say, you know, perhaps it seemed like a small change, but you know, huge uh, impacts and also huge different types of benefits with regards to human behavior change for animals, right? Or for the planets and, and also these kind of reflective, like what is it like for them, right? What do they like or not like? And, and this caring about and caring for animals and, and hopefully, you know, also that then spilling over into other things that about caring for urban wildlife or caring for the planet or species conservation. There are just so many beautiful things that can come from sometimes very small, but very important changes. What is the message? So that's just wonderful. And, and I really appreciate you sharing, you know, the research, all the collaborative efforts between all the different parties within the zoo, from the volunteers to the animal care and the scientists. And in the last part of the podcast, can you talk a little bit about the conservation projects that uh, you're doing, perhaps some success stories. We already heard a few nice success stories on animal welfare. And of course, also with regards to policy, Perhaps you can share uh, some conservation ideas that that you have been working on and in, in the wild, ex situ, in situ, and some of those success stories to conclude. Yeah, of course. Um, so one of them I already touched a little bit on, which is the Google Logo Triangle 8 project, where Dr. Dave Morgan works in um, the Republic of Congo and is working with loggers. I, that's our longest standing conservation program. So Dave Morgan had previously been a recipient of grants from Lincoln Park Zoo when we were a granting agency in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And then when we decided to shift over to hiring full-time conservation researchers, um, that was one of the, the, um, the programs that we brought in-house. So that's a program that we've been just so proud of. We just had our 20 year anniversary of um, that field site and um, the amount of work that they've done to protect, again, that really untouched, I think in the 1990s, uh, National Geographic called it like the last Eden on earth. It's really there's this unbelievably untouched part of the world where it's so biodiverse and dense and um, untouched, but having researchers who are able to collect data, understand what the animal's needs are, and then see the impact of changes to that habitat that are happening through logging. And logging not happening is not an option. So making sure that we can be intentional with understanding what things, you can't say, oh, let's just stop, but understanding the impact of those things and then pushing and affecting so that those um, impacts 
the least or have the least amount of negative impact on species, I think is something that we've been really proud of. And especially we've taken our whole collaborative um, philosophy to that field site. We do have other field biologists um, who work in very different ways. We have the Alexander Center for Population Biology. We've developed a lot of software tools to be able to better understand um, the impacts of wildlife reintroductions. So we've worked at, with Puerto Rican parrots, which is a species that became functionally extinct in the early 1980s, late 70s. Um, they were all brought into captivity. Those species were captive bred and then released. And we uh, work with them to help their data management. So that center is really just population biologists who work on mathematical models and they create software tools to make reintroductions and reintroduction decisions and population biology strategies like PBAs and our population viability analysis and population and habitat, habitat viability analysis um, possible. So those biologists really focus in on different species. I mean, Puerto Rican parrots is one of many species that they work with um, to really affect and make sure that those populations can go forward in a positive manner, that you have good genetic diversity, that you have good demographic diversity so that you can create the populations of animals thriving in the wild in the future. We do have um, some field scientists and uh, research scientists that work in Tanzania and they have been working collaboratively with community partners to look at the diversity of mammals around um, the country of Tanzania. They've been cataloging those mammals and then working with um, Maasai leaders across uh, the country um, because the Maasai have, uh, have a heritage to the lands that have been historically theirs uh, and also those same lands have been historic migratory routes for wildlife. And so in partnership with Maasai leaders and many other partners in Tanzania, Dr. Charles Foley and Laura Foley have been working to conserve um, and protect lands across Tanzania, which have been having a positive impact on the Maasai for being able to protect their pastoral historically protected lands and also protecting those migratory routes and uh, for, for animals that are so important across that landscape. And then um, lastly, we have one of our curatorial staff has been working a lot on looking at the effects of illegal um, wildlife trafficking of songbirds and trying to use a scientific approach to understanding what um, strategies we can use to mitigate illegal wildlife trafficking. Of course, illegal wildlife trafficking is the third largest um, form of trafficking in the world, right behind drugs and guns. Um, and so uh, really trying to understand what are the drivers and how we might be able to affect a positive change um, in reducing illegal wildlife, um, wildlife trafficking. Specifically, she is looking at songbirds in Southeast Asia. So those are kind of our, our bigger programs. We have other smaller projects that we work on here and there, but those are kind of our hallmark programs that we have here at the zoo. Um, as you <laughs> may have noticed, we do have a lot of our fingers in a lot of different areas um, and we like it that way. So that's kind of um, how we have developed this 
what we would probably call our science center of having so many scientists here on grounds. And we like to ask what we think of as interesting questions and then kind of dig in very deeply to figure out how we can affect a positive change for those challenges that we see, not just here for animals, but also around the world. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing. I think it's so important also, again, you also really showcase how important, you know, local and global collaboration is and doing so in a respectful and integrated manner. And as you also say, to really, you know, look at what are the important questions, you know, interesting questions to focus on and how do we, can we be part of, you know, trying to solve those or, or moving things forward. So it's so you know important to really look at all these details, and I, I think it's wonderful that you have so many different people, you know, paid research staff, all your care staff, all the other people that are involved in making all these wonderful programs happen. So I think it's just great that you had the time today to share with us, you know, all the wisdom nuggets, and really importantly also with regards to honesty to yourself when it comes to a career for animals and species conservation, but again, also highlighting the importance also that, that, you know, the roles that zoos and aquariums have today in not only, of course, making sure we have excellence in care for animals and being stewards for them, but also when it comes to, you know, animal protection and, and conservation of species, but also these last Edens um, that you talked about. And of course, you know, for sharing animal care and welfare and conservation science practice and success stories. I really appreciate your time and coming on to share all the amazing work that you and your team are doing at Lincoln Park Zoo. Thank you so much, Megan. No, oh, it was my pleasure. It's always great talking with you, Sabrina. So thank you for having me. Already the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions or go to the Animal Concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts. Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content? in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals, then check out PAWS, the practical animal welfare science platform, which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. You can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists from around the world. In the meantime, take care of you and the animals and keep buzzing.